podcast on data security, information management, and all things related to the data you have, how to protect it, and maximize its value. I'm Jay Ward. And I'm Christian Ward. Uh, today, we're going to do our 90-day checkup, Jay. Uh, GDPR, it's been live for uh, you know about three months. Let's say the buildup was significant. Uh, the, you know, I think people were um, complaining about dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, uh, and and you know, so far it seems like it's gone relatively smoothly. Um, you had written a blog post about the three issues that uh, we need to keep an eye on as we get uh, further and further into uh, GDPR being live. Um, what's your initial take? Well, I think, you know, cats and dogs living together, there was definitely a Ghostbusters 1 level of anticipation (laughs) and a Ghostbusters 2 response. Yes, right. right. Um, (laughs) It's just really been, uh, it's been quiet. Um, Quiet doesn't necessarily mean that nothing's happened. Um, You know, for instance, the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office in London, this week just announced that they've received a a multiple of the number of complaints that they previously would have received. Mm -hmm. Um, And the data protection authorities have to investigate and resolve every complaint. So they're they're busy. They're all busy. Um, I think the interesting, uh, an interesting fact for me is that a lot of the DPAs have put out guidance not official guidance, but like blog posts yes. or articles that said, look, this is how we're dealing with GDPR. This is what <clears> our <throat> approach is. And I think it's unfair to expect that they would have been ready to go on day one when most of us weren't either. Right, right. Um, because they really had to build systems and they didn't have the resources. Yeah. Um, you know, the, D- the, the uh, Data Protection Commissioner in Ireland, they had a lot more resources devoted to them than many of the other DPAs did. And they were still like... Okay, we're we're gearing up. I thought it was also interesting. Some of the feedback or some of their guidance is, uh, like you said, much less legalese. It's it's kind of like real world guidance. It's been um, starkly clear uh, compared to some of the language in the actual law. Where um, I saw one person asking about, uh, you know, if there's a photo and there's people in the background, you know, is that person identifiable? Is it not? And they said, well, it's pretty simple. Show the photo to the person that who's in it. And if they can recognize themselves, you're in trouble or, or it's, it's personal. And I thought that was just a brilliant, you know, like if you could reasonably assume and, and I, I, that fascinates me, particularly as it comes to the technology of being able to analyze people from different angles and the, um, you know, sort of uh, photo extraction capabilities have come, become so good, you know, for, for a parent you can recognize your kid in a, in a group of 30 kids from behind. Um, and and it's just, it's sort of amazing how the human brain can piece it together. But to know that our computer systems are now able to do this, yeah. what becomes personal, um, I think requires really clear, frank language from regulators, which is uh, few and far between. So this has actually been pretty interesting, some of the feedback like that. It is. And if you read what they put out, um, which you know, we do because that's the type of people we are. Um, if you read what they put out, they, they really are trying to provide guidance that's not only straightforward, but also actionable. Mm-hmm. Like if they, they'll put something, I saw the ICO had, you know, their question and answers. And one of the questions was, if I just do B2B, Marketing right. is that personal data? Right. The, the answer was yes. <laughs> that, that was like the, their, their, they went on beyond that, but it was just yep, it sure is. Yes, um, yeah. and you know they, they provide helpful examples, and then examples I think that that guide you into how serious they're taking it. But like if you're doing B two B, and everybody should listen, just because you do B two B doesn't mean that you're not getting personal data. You're getting tons of personal data. 
they go into that and they say, for example, business cards are personal I data. Know, I couldn't believe that. Right? Business cards are personal data if you intend to store them and analyze them or enter them into a database. So we're we're wondering if the, you know email addresses, phone numbers, and and pers- and first names yeah. are personal data, and they're like, oh yeah, don't that's definitely personal data. Yes. Let's talk about the business, the stack of business cards you have in your desk. Yes. So they they have not backed off at all from their position on the on the seriousness of GDPR, and and of course they wouldn't. I mean, this is they've been preparing for years for this. Um, so I think the notion that the the relative silence since May twenty fifth. Um, means something uh, doesn't mean anything. It's, yeah. it, it really is just the, the beginning periods of, of uh, gearing up. So, so let's talk about um, the three issues that uh, you had pointed to that we really need to keep an eye on. And um, I know for many of our clients, DSARS, um, yeah. you know, data subject access requests, um, this is where a, a data subject wants to understand, you know, what data do you have about me and um, h- how do you handle it? How do you protect it? Wh- where does it transfer to? All these things come, uh, were sort of building up to this crescendo before GDPR of more and more access requests. And then once it went, li- you know, went live, lots of them, it's starting to trail off or, or at least that's the initial uh, that we're seeing is it's sort of like this huge buildup of people want to know, what do you know about me? And now they're sort of like, ah, you know, not really sort of aligned to it. What do you... What do you think people or companies need to be thinking about? I think that there was a definite spike at the beginning, um, you know, for clients and for, for others that I've spoken to. They got a lot um, because I think there were people at the very beginning. You know, I, I, I fielded, I think, 10 DSAR requests at 8 o'clock in the morning on May 25th. Yeah. Yep. Um, but of course, there. I mean, these are the people who camp out to buy their iPhones. Like, they right, were yes. waiting for it, yeah. you know? Um, so once that initial spike uh, came back down and the request tapered off to a, a, a pre-May 25th level, um, the I think the temptation is to just assume that DSARs are, well, they're not going to be a big thing. I don't, I don't think that's right. I think we're going to, as customers and consumers become more familiar with their rights and develop a sense of, you know, I need to know this information to manage my data, um, the number of DSARs is going to increase again. Yeah, I, so I, I couldn't agree more. I, I also think that DSARs will ebb and flow with the news cycle. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I, I think um, we were looking at Google Trends of the words uh, big data, data privacy, um, uh, pr- uh, data breach. And then I want to say one other, and data breach has this ridiculous spike. And it was the Equifax uh, uh, data breach years ago um, that caused this massive spike. And basically, and I, I'm thinking back now, now I remember, I mean, it was everywhere. And when that sort of situation occurs, and it's highly likely to occur again, not to be doomsday, but it's it's going to happen. When that happens, you're going to see DSAR spikes. Yeah. Um, I also think... Uh, based on the software platforms that I'm seeing out there that are now available, um, we had interviewed CookieBot, you know, months ago uh, in preparation for GDPR, but other software platforms that have um, arisen to take care of managing your DSARs, um, when you got the request, when you prove the identification or verify the identification of the person that's requesting it, which I, I kind of want to talk about because that's still a very difficult topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that software, that, that's taking off. 
The software on the other side that's going to take off will be helping people actually uh, request DCRs. Yeah. And that hasn't happened yet, but that's a, we've talked about in the past. It's, it's that classic uh, do not call list sort of uh, software platform that literally makes money by <laughs> uh, inf- making sure these other companies have to stick with the enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's coming as well. And that at scale is something that you're not going to be able to sort of sit back and just watch. It's going to be rough. And what will happen is it'll be like, you know, there are those apps that you can l- use or programs where they scan all of your, e- your yeah, email. Yeah, unroll. Yeah, yeah that's what yeah. I'm thinking of. It's unroll. They scan your email and they find everything you subscribe to and then they just send an unsubscribe. Well, this is going to be exactly that. Yeah. So be prepared to send out 500 DSARs. Um, um, so to, to, to your point about um, verification, um, the recital 64 to the GDPR says that you have to take reasonable steps to ensure that the person who is getting the information in the from the DSAR is the person who's entitled to it. Um, and they're they're very serious about that because if you end if someone who's not authorized to see the data makes a request and you give it to them, you've just violated GDPR and you've had a data breach. So balancing the need to identify and verify the identity of individuals and providing them with their data is a tough balancing act, especially because you're in a situation where this person has requested your data and now you're essentially saying to them, okay, well, give us some more data. <laughs> um, so the way the way that I typically advise clients to deal with this is I say, well, let's use the data sets that we already have about them. And those can be our measures for verification. And sometimes if all that you ever have of someone is an email address, nothing else, mm-hmm. an email from that email address can be enough. Can be enough right. because how else can you verify? That's it? also how two-factor authentication it, or, or password resets exactly. all work today. So yeah. it's, it's not like any other companies in following the same protocol. Yeah. I think the more data you have on the on the data subject and the greater the sensitivity of that data the more you need to be careful about how you verify their identity and again this is all just a reasonableness test which isn't helpful because reasonableness is hard to quantify (laughs) ask a tort lawyer Um, but under the circumstances you have to make the judgment call about what is a sufficient amount of of certainty that the person is who they say they are yeah again there's there's real business opportunities here There, there are companies that um, allow for you know password protection, identity protection, things like that. I see a real opportunity for those businesses to get in the middle of these transactions um, through an encrypted authentication process that allows people to very easily verify who they are. Um, and so, if you want to go that next step, I think it's highly likely that people will have you know the ability on a biometric device using their you know their iPhone iPhone or their Google phone um, with you know thumbprint identification to allow them to request ESARs at a at a scale. Right. Um, that sort of uh, situation probably likely to happen as well. Um, the second issue um, that you had uh, started talking about was the um, data processing addenda. Yeah. So all of the contractual changes that needed to happen, and and that. Um, I know we've seen it's it's it is really amazing how many contracts, not even just with the customer, but you know the third-party contracts that are out there that have to be reviewed and revised and uh, looked at through a whole new lens with GDPR and um, not just sort of at, in the EU, but you know this cross-border concept. What what, what are you seeing there? Uh, the same addenda over and over and over again. The exact same standard protection, standard contractual clauses, the exact same outline. Um, because lawyers are not creative people, so we reuse the same forms. Um, I, I think that DPAs are 
I don't want to say a necessary evil, but maybe a necessary annoyance, mm -hmm. um, because they seem as though they are um, unnecessary. This is just another piece of paper to, to check. This is another piece of you know uh, regulatory uh, red tape for us to deal with. But the reality is they're a necessity. We have to we have to have these because if you are processing the data of individuals covered by GDPR. You need to have a contract with the controller. I mean, it's right there in GDPR. There needs to be a contract between controller and processor laying out the obligations of the processor and laying out the responsibilities of the controller. That's what these DPAs do. They allow you to comply with GDPR's documentation requirements. So they're very important. They also are very important in the sense that this is the document that will be examined by a regulator, by the counterparty, by a data subject to determine what was appropriate, what was permissible um, for you to be doing with data as a processor or what was appropriate for your processor to be doing if you're a controller and what wasn't. And that's important because if there's processing that goes on beyond that, you've got a big problem. Mm -hmm. um, if your subprocessor, if your processor is taking on you know additional tasks and doing new work with the data, well now they may have become a process a controller themselves. So there's these these DPAs are are extremely important to business relationships because they set the parameters, but they're also very important from a regulatory perspective because this is the framework within which you have to conduct your processing activities. And that's, you know, that's a, an extremely important component of your data security and data protection activities because if you don't stick to what you've said, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, I, the, the, the other side of this, though, is I, I think the regulators leading up to May 25th were very open about the fact that you needed to show progress. It was unlikely that all these things would be in place and perfect or really capturing exactly what you're doing. Yeah. So I think refinement is going to continue to be a big theme here, which is as more goes on or there are actual findings for or against certain situations by regulatory authorities. It's likely to see um, some of the, you know, let's say plagiarist approach of using the same form over and over again, which is really funny because I think plagiarism in Latin uh, has to do with kidnapping and thievery. Um, so it's great to know the lawyers are so into it. But yes, they shouldn't be using exactly the same are form. Are you surprised by no, that? I feel not. No, no, I'm not. Right, but I, ultimately, I think if um, those forms need to evolve to more situational awareness for each company, that's going to happen as there's more feedback yeah. uh, that really relates to them and the data that they process. This does tie, though, to um, uh, issue number three, which was you know the cross-border transfers. Um, and I think you likened it to the uh, Ludlum, uh, 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 Ludlum book title, which was awesome, The Ostrich Stratagem. Tell me about that. So the, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the thought process here? Um, because cross-border data transfer, what is and was such a critical part of all this? Um, how do you see that tying? And Because and, it really is related to issue two as well. Data transfers within the European Union are, although complicated, really sort of subject to a safe harbor. You can transfer data from England to France, from Denmark to Belgium. There's no real issue. It's when you're transferring data outside the Union that you start to get to a problem. Because unless there's an adequacy decision that the European Commission has reached, mm -hmm. and they have with some, so you know the Channel Islands like Jersey and Guernsey, they're covered. Um, New Zealand, I think, is covered. There's, there's not New Jersey. 
Jersey. Yeah, no, no, ab- definitely not New Jersey. <laughs> Don't send your data to Hoboken. Um, but but the, there, are, there are countries where the European Commission said, okay, there's the same or adequate level of protection for personal data in these countries, so it's okay to just transfer your data there. And some countries are working, like Japan has been, has been working with the EC for a while, and they've, they're on the verge of finalizing a mutual reciprocal adequacy decision, so you can transfer data from Japan to the European Union. That's going to facilitate a very easy flow of data between those countries. Like it's going to it's going to reduce costs, um, and you know what we used to talk about with Japan in another context, non-tariff trade barriers. It's going to reduce those in a really mm-hmm. serious way. Other than those countries that have an adequacy decision, you need to have standard contractual clauses, privacy shield. Uh, other adequacy um, provisions put in place or binding corporate rules. And, and before you, so before we get into the corporate rules, do you think it's likely that other countries or many countries are going to keep striving for adequacy? hundred percent. Because it's really a it's a business advantage. Yeah, it, it's without a doubt. So Brazil just recently published their new law, which is going to go into effect, I think, in two years. It's quite robust. Yeah. Now, um, the South Korea has one that's that's robust. Um, the couple of states in in um, Southeast Asia have. There's a couple of countries in Africa that are doing it. Like yeah. this is a big deal, and countries are really working to create an an opportunity for differentiation. Yeah. Say, look, we're we're a data friendly country. You yeah. can come do business here. And also, I mean, if you want to talk about Europe as a capital market, it's second only to the U.S. in terms of outflows of capital investment from. Um, you know, from the big money houses. And so you need to be able to have secure transmission of data between these those countries yep. and concerns over whether or not um, you're going to be able to do that easily or without a lot of oversight from the European Commission. Those are those are legitimate thoughts and, and, and worries. So countries are definitely going to look to be to get adequacy decisions. Yeah, we keep talking about um, a theme that's popping up this whole uh, concept of Data is currency, yeah. but really when you think about exchange rate policies of various currencies between countries and the flow of money in and out of countries, it's just as regulated, yeah. it's just as controlled. So if data is currency and it's money, once again, we think the regulation is going to stand up to the same level of scrutiny as you move data in and out of countries. And that's why for countries that don't have an adequacy decision like, I don't know, the United States, um, issues regarding (laughs) the transfer of data are really complicated. So we have Privacy Shield, which again, I think that's such a ridiculous name. I I always come back to the thing that you put on top of your your computer screen, your laptop, so that nobody else can look at it when you're on a plane. Um, That's the successor to the Safe Harbor, which had existed before that, that allows data transfers. As of now, it's still okay to transfer data to the United States if you're a Privacy Shield certified company. You don't need to do all of the other standard contractual clauses or any of that stuff. You can just rely on your certification under Privacy Shield. The problem is, I don't know how much longer Privacy Shield's gonna last. Yeah. It's before the European Court of Justice, and they- You think they're gonna strike it down? They're gonna- I I do, I I think they will. Um, I'm not positive, but they struck down Safe Harbor and they had no no concerns or qualms about doing it. Um, and now the European Parliament, which doesn't really have a say, this was more like an, uh, you know, a feel-good vote, 
they overwhelmingly were like, get rid of it. We don't like it. It's no good. So there's a lot of political pressure to get rid of Privacy Shield. And then if that happens, what are we going to do in this country? Well, we're going to have to rely on standard contractual clauses, or we're going to have to hope that the Commerce Department and the European Commission are going to work out a deal where we get another version of it. But the U.S., I'm telling you right now, U.S. is not getting an adequacy decision from the European Commission anytime in this decade, for sure. Um, and potentially it would be quite some time into the next decade before it happens. Unbelievable. So don't bank on it. We yeah. need to come up with a different solution that's going to work, a, a, a reasonable solution that benefits both sides. But that doesn't matter for us now who live in the real world. What are we going to do if Privacy Shield goes away? And the answer is we need to come up with standard contractual clauses. Right. We need to think about applying under the binding, uh, binding corporate rules um, program, which is actually – a really cool program, um, but very few American companies have taken advantage of it. It's like a mini adequacy decision. Yes, right. Um, which is which is really interesting. But um, I know I just I use the word cool in that context. I, I keep using that word. I don't think I know what it means. No, no, um, definitely don't. Um, so in any case, the the development of the cross border transfer regime, whatever it is, is important because it demonstrates the degree to which the GDPR really is about concern for the protection of data once it leaves the European Union. And I think American companies have, by and large, missed the boat on this. And that's where the ostrich stratagem comes in. The idea is that either by ignoring Europe as a market altogether or... Which we've seen, which is, you know, again, it kind of, it, it's it's insanity, but with California looming, it's sort of like, oh, you're going to cut out the number two right. global market. Oh, and the number eight global market. Right. Like, you're going yeah, to be marketing in Poughkeepsie pretty soon. That's <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> you and Popeye Doyle. So once you can, you can stick your head in the stand and say, well, the, the reg isn't going to apply to me. I'm not going to worry about it, or I'm going to be careful, uh, I guess, and you know, I, I won't sell people's information on the dark web. Um, but pretending like these regulations don't exist, even though they can be burdensome, is not a strategy. Yeah. It's it's just danger. And as we said, I I don't look. I, I think for many companies that are trying to do the right thing with their data and the security and the privacy of their customer and their employee and other data sets, I, whether or not they are really sort of nailed to the wall by regulation, the press and the media coverage of companies being identified as being out of compliance can have a significant cost. And so we've talked about, you know, one of the strategies that companies need to start to embrace is that trust is a huge part of brand equity. And for the amount of money that people put into building their brand and the equity in their brand and the trust with the consumer, the trust with their counterparts in B2B is, you know, that is a, a real cost and a real profit center um, uh, eventually if done properly. And this is one of those gaping holes if you're if you're following the uh, ostrich stratagem. Um, so uh, I, as we said, that's that's a quick 90-day checkup on GDPR. We'll keep checking in on it, but I think as Jay said, th- it's, not, it's not quiet. It's actually a lot going on, um, but we haven't seen any major, you know, sort of um, uh, court or, or rulings or otherwise. As that happens, I think um, we're going to see a lot more activity in this space. Um, yeah. I mean, it was quiet in Jurassic Park before, <laughs> right, before right. the T-Rex came. Right, right, before <laughs> the, the cup of water starts shaking. Excellent. Well, thank you, everyone. We'll, we'll catch you next week on Are You Data Smart? Thanks again.